Hi, my name is Rishikesh Hirway, and I have a podcast called Song Exploder. In each episode, a musician takes apart one of their songs and piece by piece tells you the story of how it was made. You get an inside look into the creative and technical process and a unique view of a song by hearing just the drums, or just the guitars, or say, just a Wurlitzer piano. If you're a fan of music, if you make music, or if you just like to learn how things are made, come check it out on MaximumFun.org. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Tell Me About Your Song, the podcast where I talk to musicians and songwriters about a song they've written. Today's guest is Alec K. Redfern of the Eyesores and other bands, and the song he'll be talking about is named The Seven and Six, and is from the album Sister Death. So where would you like to start with this, Alec? I you know, I had a job at a group home up in Boston, and it was, it was a lot of time to kill. So I had my instrument with me, and I just had this just riff. I started... And I started messing around with that shape. And, uh, you know, that shape kicked around for uh, like a year and a half, I'm going to say it was 2007. Um, I was sort of stuck in Portland, Oregon, on a dead spot in a tour, and it was very rainy. Most people's sort of impression of Portland is Portlandia at this point. You know, this sort of uh, slightly PC, oversensitive, you know, mm-hmm. like hip culture place. To me, it just seemed like an incredibly rainy green but maudlin vibe to the place. You know, everyone has neon signs because of the fog and rain and everything, and I think uh, I was also kind of pining over some woman at that point, so I felt like some, a certain amount of melancholy uh, or confusion was also, you know, that when you go on tour, your mind kind of expands to an extent, especially if you go alone, you're a little bit more open to stuff where I feel like it's a bit more of an intense experience, you know, like mm. you kind of are like at the mercy of whoever you're with, basically. So when I was in Portland, I had also like just gotten a copy of the Joe Meek recordings and was just really floored by the, this Jason Eddy and the Centerman uh, recording of the song called What You Gonna Do. So bad I'm gonna walk a long lonely mile each step I take I'll be sad And it's pretty odd for like early 60s it's got these slightly chromatic chord changes and this really wet organ sounds and it's very spacey sounding and I was like oh man I want to write a song like this So it starts out with that beat on the organ Yeah the uh the- the F, this the high F. You know, originally, like the original version of the tune was just Chris and I. I had a, a looping device, and uh, he also had a looping device. So we were just taking a little, like, just th- very simple three-note riff. What we were trying to just add, have as many layers of that as possible. So it's this very ghostly, uh, almost like a, like a bird call or something. You know, like. mm-hmm. And then uh, I eventually ended up doing this counter melody. And I play it with a really just a single reed stop in the accordions. You can really be expressive with it. I'm not doing anything with the bass button. One of the things that was really nice about this lineup of the eyesores is the tension between uh, the intonation of the accordion and the organ, which are just slightly out of tune with each other. 
and the accordion being capable of being very expressive because of the bellow and the organ being very kind of non-dynamic in that way. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a lot of interesting tension between those two instruments in this band. I, I, it's a really cool sound. And then slowly the tune kind of comes out of that, singing over the ghostly pulse thing. So the music kind of came together as a result of being influenced by the rainy, dismal, neon, and very green vibe of Portland and the sort of whacked out English sort of space pop of Joe Meek. But the lyrics were sort of also kind of inspired by that because the first half of the song is sort of talking about sex a lot. It's really just a, um, a song about fucking, basically. And and the first half of the song is kind of about that. I actually did very briefly sort of have a thing with a girl named Penelope a long time ago, uh, but it was just a one-nighter. And we both realized it was a bad idea. But uh, the name Penelope just fit the melody <laughs> really right, well. the rhythm. Know? Fit the rhythm. It's one of those names that just sounds like a children's story or just sounds kind of archaic. Penelope, oh, Penelope, Penelope in the song is a composite of a couple of different... Uh, a woman that I was really... I had on my mind when I was in Portland. And, um, you know, she was very emotional... And the line, cry me a river of piss, was sort of like, I had a weird fixation on George Bataille's story of the eye at that point. I think it's one of the funniest, disturbing and hilarious and sort of like irreverent things ever written. It's a surrealist erotic novel from the 20s from a French author, and uh, there's a lot of urination in it. And I think what it is is that he was writing a lot of erotica for money, and this thing was just, it just goes too far to be erotica. Like, it mm-hmm. just—it gets to the point where it's just beyond, it clearly becomes more of sort of surreal and bizarre uh, and, and, you know, goes beyond the genre in some way. I'm not entirely sure what his intentions were, but I was ha- had a weird fixation on that book and all the talk about pissing in it. So I thought Cry Me a River of Piss would be funny. Drown all your sorrows and skin that you borrowed from poor hapless your spirit away. Borrowed skin was an expression that William Burroughs used to describe junkies, is that they, their skin had a borrowed look to it. The idea of, in this context, is this sort of wearing a, a, like a mask or a uh, potential source of warmth. There's a lot of possible interpretations there. And then the uh, line about sailors spirited away was what was happening with, I guess, in London, uh, maybe 1700s, 1600s, where they would just knock people out and they'd wake up on a boat where <laughs> you're like, oh, you work for me now, basically. Like, mm-hmm. But I, I was sort of thinking, you know, that this Penelope had this kind of like cadre of men following her around. She was sort of, um, she had this sort of non-sexual thing with many men. And I just was filled with sexual desire and that's kind of like my frustration was that first thing and then and i think a a big sort of idea of the song is sex and love being a war against death the opposite of dying is to express yourself sexually ultimately because it's the uh you know the act that creates a child it's the ultimate act of sex magic is to actually have a baby 
I sort of built a skip into it. There's like an extra two beats in the first verse. I really like to put the listener into a state of discomfort sometimes mm-hmm. by throwing a, you know, a, a whatever curveball I can at them. While at the same time, I still view what I do as very much pop music, especially that record. Is Matt hitting a hi-hat or is that... He doesn't use any cymbals in the eyesores. Uh, he doesn't use the hi-hat or mm. any cymbals. He has um, this big chunk of metal with a bunch of various little cowbells and sort of stuff just all welded together. Mm-hmm. I had sort of gotten into the habit of not using cymbals when I was an amoebic ensemble. I sort of forbade them because I just they take up so much room sonically. Mm-hmm. Like a really dark, rich ride for a jazzy kind of texture for a really rainy sort of thing is nice. And a tight hi-hat nice but sometimes i just i feel like eliminating uh symbols from the drum kit sort of cast us into an unconventional sort right. of sound it sort of forces i mean my favorite drummers are like drumbo from captain Beefheart and um jockey from can that sort of stuff where they're really using the full kit using the sort of deeper drums and stuff The second verse, steam driven on a my mezzo soprano. That was just a funny. That was me being a, a, a clever boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't spare a pound of my flesh. Well, I guess the pound of flesh was a biblical punishment where they would actually extract a pound of flesh from you. Uh, the Merchant of Venice, Shylock gives a loan to the merchant. Saying, you know, and if you don't pay it back, I get a pound of flesh. Yes, but I think that actually was a punishment. I was thinking about sexually the idea of this sort of jackhammer sex during this, just, just raw, straight out, just pour every ounce of your being into it. And, you know, because it's the ultimate war against death, let's mm-hmm. just pound away because it's all there is. You know, it's interesting. I've been reading a lot of Crowley stuff lately, and um, his idea was, and uh, this comes up in Tantra a lot too, is that sex is the most holy thing. The point of orgasm is the most holy moment, and I feel like that is the most alive you can be in some ways. Dig your heels into the firmament's an obvious legs in the air reference. Uh, This is a very sexy song. Griming to power, you know, sort of the more and pestle imagery. Mm-hmm. I also like find that I'm a real teeth grinder and clencher. So that thing about grinding your teeth into powder, uh, powder can be incense, powder can be cocaine, powder can be a lot of things. So that's a really interesting image. And then uh, dig your heels into the firmament, just, you know, like stand on the sky, placing yourself in a completely different place in the universe at that point. You know, your reality has changed. You're upside down. <laughs> It's the wordless chorus. Yeah. It is a sort of replacement for the big chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of feel like there's no grand theme to this song. It's scattered thoughts, really. It's not a story. It's more of a sort of bunch of feelings and impressions I was having during a period of time. And it, maybe it's a lazy wave writing. I, I don't know. You know, it was originally that was a falsetto line. I used to sing. Uh, but I sort of lost the ability to sing falsetto. I was never a particularly great falsetto singer, mm-hmm. but I would throw it in there. And I, w- I used to throw yodeling in there, too. Um, and then I just realized after many years of cigarettes and also just really being honest with myself, it really didn't sound very good. I really wish I was a better singer. I really wish I was gifted with it. I've done a lot of work on my voice, but uh, it's the one thing I'm not happy with. 
well, I'm, I'm not happy with a lot of things about myself, but uh, there's one aspect of myself as a musician that I'm most frustrated with. It's a continual source of frustration is the lack of control over my voice, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's also the thing that's the most you. There's no proxy, Right, yeah, there's you know? no... <laughs> so it's sort of finding out what you can do with it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, it's my belief that any musician worth his salt can make interesting music with two rocks and, and just himself, you know? Mm -hmm. The second verse has kind of a minimalist texture with the uh, organ and the accordion doing, doing a, a lot of those sort of ricocheting minimalist. Uh, I really like minimalist music, I, specifically Terry Riley. There's something about that stuff that I just think is really like intensely, uh, it just hits the brain in a certain way and it's just such interesting stuff. I tend to borrow from the minimalists as much as I can, you know. <laughs> and Riley, in particular, is one of my favorite composers. Uh, and he also had a sense of humor, you know. And the second half of the song is sort of about this dream. The dream was basically that I was in a car with my sister. I was driving and it was night and she was sitting in the passenger seat and the cat we had growing up was sitting on her lap and it was talking to us. And we we're like, look, Mittens is here. But she was communicating with us telepathically. What she was communicating is you can't hold on to anything. It's all dust. Everything is dust. Everything is going to go away. You will eventually be left with nothing. Mm. And then uh, the cat just turned into this. It was like uh, those uh, kind of sand sculptures that they made. Uh, the, the, or like they make these sort of sand patterns. Like the Zen garden kind yes, of thing? Yes, exactly. The cat just kind of turned into sand or ash or dust and then just blew in this this, very, this strange little spiraling arc out the window and this into the night and i woke up really upset really really upset it had this really like very uh, profound effect on me so it's uh, i don't mention in the song that it's a cat right <laughs> i do mention that it's on my sister's knees when you go into the second part of the tune we do a big dynamic drop and it just goes back to the simplest pulse possible and it's Really interesting to do, you know, especially in a live context when you're doing pretty dense music that's kind of high energy to suddenly just go into this very focused. I don't see a lot of people working with dynamics. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a big miss with rock and roll. And it's such an easy thing to do. Just like, all right, we're going to get really quiet here. And we're just going to play one note. You know, be really reductive, um, especially like working with contrast, you know. I mean, like going from a minor to the relative major is the kind of contrast that I work with a lot, too, is that yeah. that adds a richness. But yeah. the, the idea was that when we start talking about the dream, it, it gets very quiet and then builds into a kind of... And it's interesting because we do the same thing with voice to skull. Oh, I always am constantly accidentally putting those tunes uh, adjacent to each other in a set, and then I'm, and I'm always like, oh. Really trying to make a balanced set of music is something that's really important, trying to uh, keep very easily bored audiences from getting bored. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. I feel like it's a real challenge to uh, keep people interested in, um, just by continually throwing different things at them, but at the same time, not so different that they just can't connect to it on some level. There's st music that just is constantly changing. I've, there's a trend of brutal prog bands like the Flying Lutenbachers. 
I really like that stuff, but it, it's got a small audience. It's got an audience of people that are very specifically into music that's uh, complex in structure. I think I'd like to write some stuff like that at some point, though I don't know. My sort of urge to be kind of a populist prevents me from kind of getting as weird as I would like to, I think. I don't really see any need to exist in a vacuum. You know, I want to connect with people on an emotional level, and it's hard to if you're being too scientific. Were the verses always in this order? or I think that I wrote the lyrics in a concentrated period of time. Mm-hmm. I think there was a couple drafts. I tend not to labor over lyrics too much. I, lyrics tend to be more about sort of wordplay and intuition. I'm not a very straightforward narrative lyricist. I tend to write kind of just using images. Burroughs is a big influence of the cut-up sort of disconnected feel is something that had an impact on me. And, and while I'm not actually literally cutting the text up, I sort of right. feel like scraps and like chunks of things. Of, uh, sort of a montage kind of. Yeah, like you're turning a radio dial and hearing like, you know, it's sort of uh, neuromancy <laughs> to yep. the whole thing, you know, that way, you know. I always really admired Nick Cave's ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Songs like John Finn's Wife have this dramatic build to them and uh, have an explosive climax. And, you know, they're, they're really interesting. I think universality is really important with music. And I think that's part of why I write the way that I write is that I want people to be able to insert it into their own narrative. If you actually just tell a story, then it's sort of self-contained. But whereas if you're doing sort of impressions and scraps and images, it can become part of someone else's story. And I think Dylan was big on that. I think Dylan Mm -hmm. is really evasive in interviews. and, And I think that may have been his intention as well as universality. I feel like there's a knack to that that I have never really had. To use an image that is clearly meaningful, but which meaning is obscure. Right. And then the audience sort of fills it in with whatever they feel is the equivalent in their own life. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting kind of collective unconscious sort of uh, like trying to uh, find these phrases that have a certain kind of resonance. That's the stuff that I find really powerful. Using sort of mythological or occult elements is kind of an interesting way of doing that. You're dealing with very old stuff and old mysterious stuff, old mysteries, you know, stuff that's intended to be used to describe things that words aren't really adequate to describe. The songwriter can kind of use that sort of approach. It's something that interests me a lot. This is when I started talking about the dream. Um, mm-hmm. The actual title of the song, the seven and six. Right. I was thinking about the seven and six being number thirteen, which is the death card in the tarot. And the death is death, but it's also abrupt change. Usually, is what one of the the uh, tarot is very layered. <laughs> yeah. I've been studying the Toth tarot, the Crowley Lady Freya Harris tarot, for a couple of years, and it's a very densely layered symbol system. <laughs> Uh, at that point, I hadn't been, though. It's funny, a lot of this stuff kind of points to the direction I'm going in now. I didn't know much about it at the time, but I, I had sort of been hanging around a lot of kind of witchy women at this, or for lack of a better term, uh, girls who were interested in hermetic sciences of some sort or other, you know, mm-hmm. or the kind of lunar experience or the solar experience. And Portland is a kind of, um, it has a major um, occult underground one thing I noticed that sort of links the two halves of the song 
there's the grind me to powder, which you talked about as being this kind of sexual mortar and pestle kind of thing. Right. But I also feel that sort of connects to the image of the ashes, like turning into ashes. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting observation. I, I mean, again, it was not something I directly intended, but I'm powder and ashes and... I spent a lot of time doing hard drugs when I was in my 20s, and it sort of left, it was a very imprinting sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. specifically heroin was my kind of drug of choice, and it was a, a drug that I had crazy visions on. It's the devil. It's totally, it's a very evil thing. Uh, powders have a sort of kind of weird, like, evil alchemical <laughs> quality to them. Uh, you know, this sort of dark alchemy of powder. Um And all, all the powder can be, you know. But ashes is, you know, ultimately... Uh, you know what we all become. Everything you love is battleship gray. All the fading away. Battleship gray is just a color I don't like thinking about uh, going to Battleship Cove as a child. Specifically, Battleship Gray is a kind of a, a quality that uh, there's something death-like about that color to me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, not to be dramatic, but it's just this sort of the color has been drained out of it or something. It's, right, and it's also kind of another one of those sort of water or liquid kind of... Exactly, yeah. I was really thinking about things on an elemental, uh, you know, thinking cabalistically or dividing things by element or dividing things by uh, planetary attributions or something. Of, and I'm not saying that I necessarily believe in astrology as any sort of science, but using those sort of archetypes as an organizational system. This has happened. Critics often say, uh, at the end, the guitar comes in. Oh. Yeah. I run the accordion through, you know, a whole range of effects a lot of times and get guitar-like sounds. At the end of this is accordion uh, run through rat pedal and a crybaby wah pedal. And that's sort of where you get that sort of And, you know, obviously the accordion is also uh, kind of condenser mic, so they pick up a large range. So there's a certain amount of feedback one of the things you can do with accordion is you have the feedback from the pedal and then you can also swell tones underneath the feedback and create weird sort of clashes between the, the feedback tone and the tone you're bringing underneath it. You have a control that you don't have with guitar mm-hmm. because you have the bellow, you know, and you can bring that tone up uh, very slowly and you get that arc of overtones that way. And there's a certain type of vibrato that you get. Like, it's very characteristic of the accordion. You don't really hear it with a guitar player. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. There's a point where, I don't know if this is, everyone has this, but if I pick my heel up about this high, my leg just starts shaking uncontrollably. It's a little bit of a chaos factor. I mean, I really like having a couple chaos factors in music, and obviously sure. my voice is a constant chaos factor. I've lately decided that um trying to keep things, like, uh, as economical as possible for touring, you have to kind of create chaos on a budget. <laughs> and the world is full of chaos. You don't have to really... Touring itself is lack of sleep becomes a chaos element. All of its stuff becomes the chaos element. But there's always that... You want this... Some, there's always some gamble you want to throw in there. There's always some kind of eaching. Because I, I never want to want the songs to sound the same way every time. That's why I like to put improvisational sections in songs. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel like the live experience should be different and that it should be different every night. Because if it's not a living thing, then it, I don't want to perform something that's just sort of this dead thing. That's this like structure. Right, by rote kind yeah, of. Exactly, exactly. So um, that's a challenge, you know. I wish it was one of these guys that could just kind of improvise new verses for things live. Like guys like that just... 
back in the 80s working in a kitchen with these black kids who were like this incredible freestyle rappers because i was uh you know like the punk rock kid with the robert smith hair so they're doing this incredibly what would be considered to be kind of homophobic these days you know they just go yeah like, well, uh, right. rant about me with my funny hair it was very clever though I yeah <laughs> you appreciated the artistry of it i did i did Orion sings kind of a harmony. She usually does a lot of what we jokingly refer to as the one-note girl harmony, mm-hmm. which is just she usually sings a drone vocal against mine with a couple little lilts on it. She's a great singer. She has a really interesting natural voice. It's when she really just belts and really does her thing, it's really compelling. And, uh, you know, just in terms of the band on that one, I mean, Matt is a drummer who's capable of a lot of different things. I mean, Matt's just sort of a fiery ball of energy, but he's also very controlled. And he has this really interesting thing where he's virtuosic, but he's not jazzy. His sort of drum virtuosity is very, very singular. It's very informed by punk rock. And he did the Scottish drumming for a long time. So there's a lot of that real, like, marchy stuff, you know, snare work, tight snare work. He's a really incredible drummer. Yeah, I heard him play some of that stuff at his uh, wedding. And I was like, oh, yes. that's where that comes from. All right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's always a little bit of it in there someplace. Yeah, you know, I've known Matt since uh, we were little kids. He was a freshman as I was sort of coming back from my second senior year. My first senior year, I was living in this alternate reality in some way. I'd sort of decided I was going to go be part of, like, the. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Suburbia. I, I just wanted to live in that sort of, like, runaway punk rock world, and it was very silly. Uh, so I decided to try to live that dream. It didn't work out, so I came back and finished high school. And then Matt was really one of the only other people that I could talk to or relate to at school. So, uh, And we were just two very negative, you know, very angry children. Playing the song in different contexts, do you feel like different things sort of come to the fore? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a sort of vocal lyric-centric thing, and it's a, it's an interesting thing because it's sort of apart from the other iSource material in an iSource set because it's uh, the other iSource stuff is very kind of ecstatic, high energy. Not, not ecstatic as in happy, but ecstatic in terms of it, you know, has that sort of electricity to it. That um, And this is, and it's fiery. Most of the iSource set is very fiery. And then there's this kind of this languid, wet, sad, creepy tune that we will go into in the middle of a set. And it's an interesting contrast. My solo sets tend to be gloomier and dronier and stranger. That tune took a lot of different permutations over its life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a pretty big feature in our sets, and it's one that I was really happy with on that record. Uh, it's one that I feel like is a pretty easy vocal melody for me because I'm not terribly thrilled with my with the voice that I was given. <laughs> I've always wished that I could sing like Rocky Erickson or James Brown or something, but I just don't have that voice. I'm stuck with my limited sort of white man, thin, reedy, slightly nasal voice, and I, I do what I can with it, I guess. Uh, but that tune, I feel like, sits comfortably in my range, so it's nice. There's always an element of invocation when you're performing live. Um, mm-hmm. Invocation in the sense of bringing, not so much like conjuring something, but actually bringing something in, into yourself. So I try to invoke some kind of heartbreak to give the proper delivery to this. 
when it's been on, I've like actually started sort of crying during that song live, which is interesting because I don't really cry normally. I'm kind of a, a emotionally constipated person. Sure. Uh, you know, I don't really like dealing with emotions very much. We're New Englanders. Right, exactly. <laughs> we have that kind of like British Isles, uh, Irish, Scottish, English reserve, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, when we, when we do express ourselves, it's in rage, you know, like usually behind the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> There's the old joke. Uh, did you hear about the New Englander who loved his wife so much he almost told her? <laughs> that's that's pretty great. <laughs> I had not heard that one. Yeah, there you go. Then the end of it is this sort of chromatic C sharp to C. And then we kind of swirl it. The organ very put a lot of delay, the accordion with some distortion and the horn with some delay on it. I just wanted it to kind of all be like some various colored smokes drifting in on out of each other. And then it settles into these uh, I really wanted to exploit the, the low reeds and the accordion, so there's this like thing vroom, these little breaths at the end of it. We actually had to modify it for playing live because people would start clapping before the end because there's a space and then we like the last 50 seconds is the sort of free time like a significant percentage of the song yeah that's true the art of uh, improvisation is important to me you know so the end of this tune I just kind of really wanted to milk that people want to hear more of your music what should they do search alec k redfern and the eyesores and that's a l e c middle initial k last name is r e d and this is where people make the mistake is f e a r n you can't spell redfern without fear you can either go to alekkredfern.com or you can go to youtube and just search my name and you'll find a lot of live videos and yeah, there's also cuneiformrecords.com word cuneiform is uh, c-u-n-e-i-f-o-r-m that's where sister death is sister death uh the, the record that the seven and six is featured on uh you can get the cd the vinyl is released by a french label what a mess records i'll link to all this stuff in the show notes i'm also on facebook if you feel like friending me and they talk about um metaphysics a little bit and i talk a lot about music and i feel talk passionately about music mm-hmm. uh, i don't really do much with twitter i do have a twitter account and if people want to find out about shows and things, then you go on tour from time to time. Yes. That's um, on your website that also. Will, that'll either be on my website or it'll be on the Facebook, um, the Alec A. Redfern and the Eyesource Facebook fan page. Uh, or on, I, though actually, I make a lot of announcements through my personal page and through the fan page. I also have a new project called Mystery Red Inferno, which is a solo project. Uh, it's mostly a home-recorded solo project, and I just bought the domain name mysteryredinferno.com, but I haven't made a website yet. But mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a whole weird alter ego project. Well, my name's Jacob Haller. My website's at music.jwgh.org if you want to check out my music or find out where I'm playing. I've created a blog for the Tell Me About Your Song podcast. It's on Tumblr and can be found at yoursongpodcast.tumblr.com, T-U-M-B-L-R. And I'll post show notes for this, links to all of Alex's websites and, you know, various things that we've talked about. 
There's also a page on Facebook for Tell Me About Your Song. Search for it there and you'll find it. It's also on iTunes and Stitcher where you can rate and review it if you use either of those services. So thanks for listening and we're going to go out by listening to Alec K. Redfern and the Eyesores playing the 7 and 6.
I, 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 well, not a stranger, but um, is it fireworks or? Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I think so. Yeah. Fourth of July is only, what, three weeks away? <laughs> yeah, the Fourth of July starts around Thanksgiving and ends around, you know, uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> wow. Well, that's going to make editing interesting. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I was trying to think of a, a, there's one thing I was thinking about with podcasting. I I don't think there's a single occult podcast, occult-oriented podcast without cats in the background, without oh, yeah. at least hearing a cat at one point, you know. <laughs> sure. Hmm. All right. Yeah, that's that's interesting that, the, that when you think about demographics and sort of uh, reality, I've been reading a lot of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's yeah, stuff lately, and he talks. Uh, he's been uh, reading a book about the uh, that he wrote about the Eighth Circuit, uh, Eighth Circuit uh, model of consciousness. That he's expounding on one of Timothy Leary's ideas of the Eighth mm-hmm. Circuit model of consciousness. But um, it talks about everyone living in their own reality tunnel, and uh, that uh, objective reality is something that. Uh, it's hard as well it's just there's no concern he doesn't really concern himself with objective reality it's like the idea of everyone has their own specific reality because they're prisoners of their senses you know um Mm -hmm. so that that term has been getting bandied around a lot so (laughs) it's been big around the house Uh (laughs) sure i can see yeah and we certainly like live in our own reality tunnels, you know, like, which, yeah. uh, which where we have blinders up against certain things that we don't feel like dealing with, and you know, like tax and death, and mm-hmm. taxes and death, and people we are avoiding, and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you have any other questions? 